PenPod, internal medicine podcasts from the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Hey everyone, today we're going to talk about how to approach AKI in patients with cirrhosis. So AKI is a very important clinical event in this population because it increases the risk of complications and death in those with cirrhosis. It's also important because the serum creatinine contributes to the calculation of the MELD score, which is a scoring system used for patients with liver disease to estimate three-month mortality and to prioritize liver allocation in those who are waitlisted for liver transplant. When calculating the MELD score, the max creatinine that can be entered is a four. So simply put, the higher the creatinine, the higher the MELD score, and the better the chances are of receiving a liver if the patient is waitlisted. So how do we define AKI? So renal function is estimated by measuring the serum creatinine, but keep in mind that especially in cirrhotic patients, the serum creatinine is not always accurate because of muscle wasting and low muscle mass. And it's also been shown to be less accurate in women. So what really, what matters more is actually the rate of change in the creatinine. The way we define AKI is by using the KDGO definition, which is one of the following. Either A, when your creatinine increases by 0.3 or more within a 48-hour period, or B, a 50% increase in creatinine within seven days, or C, urine output less than 0.5 cc per kilo per hour for six hours or more. So let's talk about the differential. So the differential diagnosis for the causes of AKI and cirrhosis is the same as in those without cirrhosis, except that cirrhotics are also at risk for having something that we call hepatorenal syndrome or HRS, which is a specific type of renal injury seen in patients with liver disease. And we're going to talk more about this in a second. The way to approach AKI etiologies is to classify them as either pre-renal, intrinsic renal, or post-renal. So the most common cause of AKI in general and in cirrhotics is pre-renal AKI, which represents more than 60% of AKI. Um, so the causes for pre-renal AKI are one, hypovolemia, so think fluid losses, so either very poor PO intake, a lot of GI losses, so vomiting, diarrhea, recent or frequent large volume paras without receiving albumin afterwards, overdiuresis, and bleeding, especially GI bleeding in these patients. Another cause is sepsis in general, cardiorenal syndrome, and hepatorenal syndrome. Then the next classification is intrinsic renal dysfunction, which is secondary to parenchymal renal disease, which represents about 30 to 35% of AKIs in cirrhotics. And these are your glomerulonephritides, your nephrotic syndromes, AIN, contrast nephropathy, ATN, medication-induced ATN, so patients on tacrolimus, NSAIDs, and aminoglycosides. And something we call biocast nephropathy, which is something we see in patients with hyperbilirubinemia, where they have um, bilirubin casts causing like an ATN. And then post-renal is the least common, and this is your classic urinary tract obstruction where you're going to see hydronephrosis. 
So now let's talk about hepatorenal syndrome or HRS. So HRS is a type of pre-renal kidney dysfunction that occurs in patients with liver disease and usually is seen in patients with decompensated cirrhosis or severe alcoholic hepatitis, specifically in those ref with refractory ascites requiring paracentesis. It's characterized by a rapid rise in the serum creatinine that is not responsive to fluids and discontinuation of diuretics. It's primarily caused by renal hypoperfusion and renal vasoconstriction, and the most common precipitant for HRS is actually infection, specifically SBP and bacteremia. The reason why it's so important to recognize this is that it carries a very high mortality rate, and given the high rate of mortality, these patients that you suspect have HRS should be evaluated for liver transplant. So now let's talk about the pathophysiology of HRS. So the way that I like to think about it is it's like cardiorenal syndrome, except that the kidneys are connected to the liver. So that dysfunction in the liver predisposes to dysfunction in the kidneys. It's a result of a very complex interplay between the cirrhotic liver, the kidneys, and circulatory dysfunction. So what happens is that over time, the scarring in the liver leads to portal hypertension, which results in reflex vasodilation of the splanchnic circulation to accommodate the increased portal blood volume. This results in the release of vasodilators, primarily nitric oxide, which goes out into the systemic circulation and causes vasodilation of both the splanchnic vasculature and systemic vasculature, leading to a reduction in the SVR and a decreased effective arterial blood volume. In the early stages, um, the heart compensates for this decrease in SVR by increasing the cardiac output thus allowing the arterial pressure and effective arterial blood volume to remain normal. This, comp this compensatory mechanism results in a hyperdynamic circulation with a little bit of tachycardia and lower baseline blood pressures and an increased ejection fraction on echo. With more advanced cirrhosis, there's more peripheral vasodilation and the heart is eventually unable to compensate for this which leads to underfilling of the arterial circulation and decreased effective arterial blood volume. This reduction in effective arterial blood volume is sensed by the kidneys and results in activation of the RAS system and the symp sympathetic nervous system and increases the secretion of vasopressin or ADH, which is all the body's attempt to maintain effective arterial blood volume and renal perfusion renal arterial pressure but this response has adverse effects it increases sodium and free water retention which causes more ascites and more edema and causes renal vasoconstriction and hypoperfusion which is what causes the kidney injury this is why renal failure is commonly seen in cirrhotics with ascites and edema and remember when you're thinking of HRS, the patient has to have ascites or they don't have HRS. It's also felt that bacterial translocation, which is the passage of bacteria from the intestinal lumen into the systemic circulation, may also contribute to this by causing an inflammatory response, which causes the decrease in SVR. 
Um, and so that's one of the ideas behind HRS. So the classic person with HRS is someone with cirrhosis, severe and refractory ascites, a low urine sodium, hyponatremia, and hypotension. That's your classic HRS patient. So the diagnostic criteria for HRS um, are the following. And, and remember, it's very important. HRS is a diagnosis of exclusion. You have to exclude all other etiologies of AKI before calling it HRS. So the diagnostic criteria, the patient has to have ascites, they have to have liver disease, they have to have a doubling of their creatinine, at least, um, it has to be at least 1.5, and some people say at least greater than 2.5. No improvement despite holding diuretics, no improvement despite an albumin challenge, absence of shock, which usually suggests more of an ATN type of picture, no current or recent use of nephrotoxic drugs, and the absence of intrinsic renal disease, meaning the protein has to be less than 500 mg per day, and the red blood cells have to be less than 50 with a normal RP ultrasound. So, for those of you that don't know, what we mean by albumin challenge, in patients with AKI and cirrhosis, they get what we call an albumin challenge, which is when you administer one gram per kilogram of albumin per day to a max of 100 grams at a time, and you do this for two to three days. If the creatinine doesn't get better, then they, quote, failed their albumin challenge. Remember, you're not gonna give someone albumin if they have a normal albumin, but the majority of these patients don't. So there are two types of HRS, type one and type two, and it's based on how quickly the renal function declines. So type one HRS is when the creatinine doubles to a value greater than 2.5 within a two week period, despite the albumin challenge and discontinuation of diuretics for at least two days. Type 2 is an increase in the creatinine, typically to 1.5 to 2.5 over a period of more than two weeks. Patients with type 1 HRS are a lot sicker and have a much worse prognosis with a median survival of one month as opposed to six months in those with type 2. Patients with type 1 also typically have multi-organ dysfunction whereas the clinical picture of patients with type 2 HRS are usually just patients with refractory ascites. So the focus there is managing their ascites with paracentesis. So what's difficult to do is actually to differentiate HRS and ATN. Sometimes it's very obvious, but other times it can be very difficult. And what I recommend doing is looking at the whole clinical picture. Did the patient have hypotension before the AKI came on? Did they have evidence of shock immediately beforehand? All of these things would favor ATN. Did they recently receive IV contrast or aminoglycosides or any other nephrotoxic agents? It can be difficult because the classic teaching is that patients with ATN have granular casts, but granular casts can be seen with HRS and ATN. Um, especially those with severe hyperbilirubinemia. Um, urine electrolytes can be helpful. Um, if the FENA is less than 1%, 
and the urine sodium is less than 10, this usually favors HRS, whereas with ATN, the urine sodium is usually greater than 20. But remember, diuretics can affect these numbers by increasing renal salt excretion, meaning patients with diuretics typically have more salt in their urine. Um, HRS patients, even if they're on diuretics, um, their urine sodium is still oftentimes very low, less than 20 and usually less than 10. So now let's talk about how to evaluate AKI and what to do when you're actually on the wards taking care of these patients. So when you see a patient with AKI, the type of things you want to ask when you're taking your history are, you want to ask about circulatory volume loss. Did they have a large volume paracentesis recently? How much was removed? Did they get albumin before, during, or after the paracentesis? Have they recently had diarrhea? Are they having too much diarrhea because they're taking too much lactulose? Are there any signs of GI bleeding? Have they been vomiting? Have they been taking too much of their diuretics? You want to ask about recent medications. Have they taken any nephrotoxic drugs? NSAIDs, recent antibiotics. You want to ask about their diuretic use and what their weights have been doing. And then you also want to see if they've had recent IV contrast. Then you want to, let's talk about the workup. So you want to get a BMP because the creatinine is still the most widely used method for estimating renal function, and it'll also let you look at the electrolytes. You're looking for hyperkalemia, hyponatremia. You want to order urine electrolytes, which is your urine sodium, urine creatinine, and urine urea, so that you can calculate your FENA and your FE urea. You also typically want to order a urine protein to creatinine ratio, because if it's greater than 500 milligrams of protein per day, this indicates intrinsic renal disease. You want to get a UA and urine microscopy to look for sediment. You want to make sure there's no pyuria, which can be infectious or inflammatory. You want to ensure no hematuria, which is greater than 50 RBCs per high power field. And you want to look for casts. You also typically want to order an RP ultrasound so that you can look for evidence of urinary tract obstruction. And this also lets you um, know if the patient has any evidence of baseline CKD. And you want to bladder scan them to make sure they're not retaining. You also want to do a rectal exam and trend their hemoglobin to ensure that they're not bleeding. You always send an infectious workup. Um, including a diagnostic paracentesis to rule out SBP. It's very important that in any patient with cirrhosis and an AKI that you do a diagnostic paracentesis because one of the most common precipitants of AKI is actually SBP. So when you do the diagnostic para, this is when you take about 50 cc's of fluid off and you send the fluid off for studies. You want to check cell counts so that you can calculate the number of segmented neutrophils. If the, no, if the number of segmented neutrophils is greater than 250, this is diagnostic of SBP. You also typically send it for albumin, total protein, and routine culture. Remember, leukocytosis might be absent in these patients. Um, so patients with SPP don't always have a leukocytosis. They can be leukopenic or even have a normal white count. So now let's move on and talk about the management and treatment. So 
when you have a patient with AKI and cirrhosis, you always want to start with an albumin challenge unless their albumin's normal, in which case you just do a f- normal fluid challenge, meaning giving them IV fluids. You want to give them albumin one gram per kilogram per day for three days, and you never give more than 100 grams daily. If the AKI improves, it's likely pre-renal and you continue giving them fluids. If the AKI doesn't improve, then you want to start thinking about HRS, understanding that you have to rule out everything else. You want to discontinue antihypertensives, diuretics, and any other offending meds, and always avoid NSAIDs. You want to have a low threshold for antibiotics if you think they could be infected. And in these patients, we typically start with a third-generation cephalosporin, but always base your antibiotic selection on their prior microdata and what you think their infection may be. If they're critically ill and you suspect sepsis, you can consider hydrocortisone as these patients oftentimes have relative adrenal insufficiency from sepsis. You want to avoid excessive IV fluids as this can result in fluid overload and worsening ascites and hyponatremia. And early on, you want to avoid large volume paracentesis Um, Because when you take too much fluid off initially, you can cause what we call post-paracentesis circulatory dysfunction. And this is hypotension seen after paracentesis, secondary to large volume shifts. So essentially, if you take four or more liters out of someone's peritoneum, they're going to have massive fluid shifts from their circulatory system to their peritoneal space, and you're gonna cause hypotension and worsening renal injury. So now let's talk about HRS treatment. So say we've gone through our management, we've gone through our algorithm, and we have excluded everything, and we have determined that we think this patient has HRS. Let's talk about the the specific treatments that we use. So what the what we have available in the US is what we call the MAO cocktail. What this is is it's when you administer midodrine, albumin and octreotide to the patient. So MAO. Midodrine, it's an oral systemic vasoconstrictor. Um, so it helps with that low SVR that you see with HRS. You want to start by giving them 5 milligrams POTID and increase to a max of 15 milligrams TID. And the goal here is you're increasing your midodrine to a goal increase in the MAP by 10 millimeters of mercury. Um, If they're hypertensive, you clearly don't uptitrate your midodrine. You're also gonna give them albumin daily, usually in the range of 20 to 40 grams per day. And again, you don't have to give this every single day if their albumin level is normal because you can actually induce pulmonary edema and that can cause more problems. And you also want to start octreotide. You want to start 100 micrograms sub-Q TID to a max of 200 micrograms TID. And the way that octreotide works is that it decreases splanchnic vasodilation. Remember, the response rate to this is actually very low in the order of 30 to 40%. And if they don't respond, then usually the next thing you're looking at is a trial of levofed in order to avoid having to start them on RRT. If they respond, then they'll often continue on the midodrine plus minus the octreotide for a long duration of time. 
So now let's talk about um, other forms of treatment. So we then are going to talk about terlipressin, which is a vasopressin analog. What terlipressin does is it binds to the V1 receptors on vascular smooth muscle cells, causing vasoconstriction of systemic and splanchnic circulation. It's actually not approved in the U.S. It's used um, in Europe, actually, and it has a also not the greatest response rate, but it's more effective than the MAO cocktail, and the response rate is in the order of 40 to 60%. And in those who do respond, it actually improves survival. The other treatment is levofed. Um, sometimes you'll see patients with HRS being transferred to the MICU just to be started on levofed. And what you're, when you're doing that, you're titrating your levo to a goal increase in MAP again by at least 10 millimeters of mercury. There have been only few studies evaluating vasopressin versus levofed but Levo seems to be as efficacious as terlipressin with similar mortality rates. So it's reasonable to do since we don't have access to terlipressin. And then the other thing is renal, repl renal replacement therapy. Um, something that comes up a lot, and this is not something for you to have to deal with, it's, it's a discussion with your attending, but the use of renal replacement therapy in patients with HRS it really should only be offered in patients who are awaiting liver transplant um, or in those with a potentially reversible condition, like alcoholic hepatitis. And really, the only definitive treatment for HRS is liver transplant, hence why patients that you think have HRS should be evaluated for liver transplant and listed for liver transplant if they're deemed to be good candidates. Renal function usually recovers after liver transplant, but some patients who have HRS for a long period of time before getting transplanted will not recover their renal function and will later also need a kidney transplant. So think of it kind of as like a prolonged pre-renal state that turns into more of an ATN picture, which is initially reversible early on with a transplant, but can become more of a permanent renal failure with time. And then another thing that has been shown to improve renal function in patients with HRS is um, portosystemic shunting, so placing a TIPS. But this is infrequently used uh, for this purpose at this time. So let's review the big take-home points of this uh, pen pod. So first things, in patients with AKI and cirrhosis, you want to stop the diuretics, stop nephrotoxic drugs, give an albumin challenge and exclude intrinsic renal injury. You want to rule out a GI bleed by trending their hemoglobin and send an infectious workup, including a diagnostic paracentesis, always. If AKI improves with an albumin challenge and fluid repletion, then it's pre-renal and you're done. If AKI doesn't improve and the rest of the workup is unrevealing, then you want to think about HRS. If the AKI worsens, despite everything we just said, then you want to start them on metadrine, albumin, and octreotide, and think about maybe even doing levofed if they're not responding. And then when performing a large volume para, more than four to five liters at a time, always give back albumin to prevent massive fluid shifts and AKI. 
you can't have HRS without ascites. So if they, ha- if they don't have ascites, they don't have HRS. If their albumin is normal, then you fluid challenge them with LR or normal saline as opposed to albumin. And the onset of renal failure can be spontaneous or precipitated by an acute insult, such as infection or bleeding. So you always want to think about these in your cirrhotic population. And then lastly, HRS is a diagnosis of exclusion.